Good evening, folks. Welcome back to Rob Reads 2 with uh, Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Last time, we had uh, two chapters, one in which a lot happened and one in which hardly anything happened. The first one, uh, Davy locked his sister Dora into uh, the uh, shed over the Harrison place and just kind of left her there. And while Anne and Marilla were panicking and looking all over the place, he lied and said he had no idea where she was. And uh, he didn't realize that lying was a big deal and had a great deal of fun with it. And of course, he got in a great deal of trouble for it, though perhaps not quite as much as he should have done, because uh, he didn't realize that lying was a bad thing, because he had not been brought up right. And then the following chapter was Anne writing to an old school friend of hers who we don't really know and don't really remember, and it's not really important, but mostly just telling stories about her students and reading some of the things that they have written, uh, and of course ending with a long uh, thing written by Paul Irving about the imaginary people that he knows, and he was very careful to explain at the end, of course, it's not actually real. So now, chapter 12, A Jonah Day. It really began the night before with the restless, wakeful vigil of grumbling toothache. When Anne arose in the dull, bitter winter morning, she felt that life was flat, stale, and unprofitable. She went to school in no angelic mood. Her cheek was swollen and her face ached. The schoolroom was cold and smoky, for the fire refused to burn, and the children were huddled about it in shivering groups. Anne sent them to their seats with a sharper tone than she had ever used before. Anthony Pye strutted to his with his usual impertinent swagger, and she saw him whisper something to his seatmate, and then glance at her with a grin. Never, so it seemed to Anne, had there been so many squeaky pencils as there were that morning, and when Barbara Shaw came up to the desk with a sum, she tripped over the coal scuttle with disastrous results. The coal rolled to every part of the room, her slate was broken into fragments, and when she picked herself up, her face stained with coal dust, sent the boys into roars of laughter. Anne turned from the second reader class, which she was hearing. Really, Barbara, she said icily, if you cannot move without falling over something, you'd better remain in your seat. It is positively disgraceful for a girl of your age to be so awkward. Poor Barbara stumbled back to her desk, her tears combining with coal dust to produce an effect truly grotesque. Never before had her beloved, sympathetic teacher spoken to her in such a tone or fashion. Barbara was heartbroken. Anne herself felt a prick of conscience, but it only served to increase her mental irritation. And the second reader class remember that lesson yet, as well as the unmerciful infliction of arithmetic that followed. Just as Anne was snapping the sums out, Sinclair Donnell arrived breathlessly. You are half an hour late, Sinclair, Anne reminded him frigidly. Why is this? Please, miss, I had to help Ma make a pudding for dinner, because we're expecting company and Clarice Almira's sick, was Sinclair's answer, given in a perfectly respectful voice, but nevertheless provocative of great mirth among his mates. Take your seat and work out these six problems on page 84 of your arithmetic for punishment, said Anne. Sinclair looked rather amazed at her tone, but he went meekly to his desk and took out his slate. Then he stealthily passed a small parcel to Joe Sloan across the aisle. Anne caught him in the act, and jumped to a fatal conclusion about that parcel. Old Mrs. Hiram Sloane had lately taken to making and selling nut cakes by way of adding to her scanty income. The cakes were specially tempting to small boys, and for several weeks 
Anne had had not a little trouble in regard to them. On their way to school, the boys would invest their spare cash at Mrs. Hiram's, bring the cakes along with them to school, and, if possible, eat them and treat their mates during school hours. Anne had warned them that if they brought any more cakes to school, they would be confiscated. And yet, here was Sinclair Donnell coolly passing a parcel of them, wrapped up in the blue and white striped paper Mrs. Hiram used, under her very eyes. "'Joseph,' said Anne quietly, "'bring that parcel here.' Joe, startled and abashed, obeyed. He was a fat urchin who always blushed and stuttered when he was frightened. Never did anybody look more guilty than poor Joe at that moment. "'Throw it into the fire,' said Anne." Joe looked very blank. "'Please, miss,' he began. "'Do as I tell you, Joseph, without any words about it. "'But, miss, there,' gasped Joe in desperation. "'Joseph, are you going to obey me, or are you not?' said Anne. A bolder and more self-possessed lad than Joe Sloane would have been overawed by her tone and the dangerous flash of her eyes. This was a new Anne, whom none of her pupils had ever seen before. Joe, with an agonized glance at Sinclair, went to the stove, opened the big square front door, and threw the blue and white parcel in, before Sinclair, who had sprung to his feet, could utter a word. Then he dodged back just in time. For a few moments, the terrified occupants of Avonlea School did not know whether it was an earthquake or a volcanic explosion that had occurred. The innocent-looking parcel, which Anne had rashly supposed to contain Mrs. Hiram's nutcakes, really held an assortment of firecrackers and pinwheels for which Warren Sloane had sent to town by Sinclair Donnell's father the day before, intending to have a birthday celebration that evening. The crackers went off in a thunderclap of noise, and the pinwheels bursting out of the door spun madly around the room, hissing and spluttering. Anne dropped into her chair, white with dismay, and all the girls climbed shrieking upon their desks. Joe Sloane stood as one transfixed in the midst of the commotion, and Sinclair, helpless with laughter, rocked to and fro in the aisle. Prilly Rogerson fainted, and Annetta Bell went into hysterics. It seemed a long time, although it was really only a few minutes, before the last pinwheel subsided. Anne, recovering herself, sprang to open doors and windows and let out the gas and smoke which filled the room. Then she helped the girls carry the unconscious Prilly onto the porch, where Barbara Shaw, in an agony of desire to be useful, poured a pail full of half-frozen water over Prilly's face and shoulders before anyone could stop her. It was a full hour before quiet was restored. But it was a quiet that might be felt. Everybody realized that even the explosion had not cleared the teacher's mental atmosphere. Nobody, except Anthony Pye, dared whisper a word. Ned Clay accidentally squeaked his pencil while working a sum, caught Anne's eye, and wished the floor would open and swallow him up. The geography class were whisked through a continent with a speed that made them dizzy. The grammar class were parsed and analyzed within an inch of their lives. Chester Sloan, spelling odiferous with two Fs, was made to feel that he could never live down the disgrace of it, either in this world or that which is to come. Anne knew that she had made herself ridiculous and that the incident would be laughed over that night at a score of tea tables, but the knowledge only angered her further. In a calmer mood, she could have carried off the situation with a laugh, but now that was impossible, so she ignored it in icy disdain. When Anne returned to the school after dinner, 
all the children were as usual in their seats, and every face was bent studiously over a desk, except Anthony Pye's. He peered across his book at Anne, his black eyes sparkling with curiosity and mockery. Anne twitched open the drawer of her desk in search of chalk, and under her very hand, a lively mouse sprang out of the drawer, scampered over the desk, and leaped to the floor. Anne screamed and sprang back as if it had been a snake, and Anthony Pye laughed aloud. Then a silence fell, a very creepy, uncomfortable silence. Annette Bell was of two minds whether to go into hysterics again or not, especially as she didn't know just where the mouse had gone. But she decided not to. Who could take any comfort out of hysterics with a teacher so white-faced and so blazing-eyed standing before one? Who put that mouse in my desk? said Anne. Her voice was quite low, but it made a shiver go up and down Paul Irving's spine. Joe Sloan caught her eye, felt responsible from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, but stuttered out wildly, n not me, t teacher, n not me. Anne paid no attention to the wretched Joseph. She looked at Anthony Pye, and Anthony Pye looked back, unabashed and unashamed. Anthony, was it you? Yes, it was, said Anthony insolently. Anne took her pointer from her desk. It was a long, heavy, hardwood pointer. Come here, Anthony. It was far from being the most severe punishment Anthony Pye had ever undergone. Anne, even the stormy-souled Anne she was at that moment, could not have punished any child cruelly. But the pointer nipped keenly, and finally Anthony's bravado failed him. He winced, and the tears came to his eyes. Anne, conscience-stricken, dropped the pointer and told Anthony to go to his seat. She sat down at her desk, feeling ashamed, repentant, and bitterly mortified. Her quick anger was gone, and she would have given much to have been able to seek relief in tears. So all her boasts had come to this. She had actually whipped one of her students. How Jane would triumph, and how Mr. Harrison would chuckle. But worse than this, bitterest thought of all, she had lost her last chance of winning Anthony Pye. Never would he like her now. Anne, by what somebody has called, kept back her tears until she got home that night. Then she shut herself in the East Gable room and wept all her shame and remorse and disappointment into her pillows. Wept so long that Marilla grew alarmed, invaded the room, and insisted on knowing what the trouble was. The trouble is... I've got things the matter with my conscience, sobbed Anne. Oh, this has been such a Jonah day, Marilla. I'm so ashamed of myself. I lost my temper and whipped Anthony Pye. I'm glad to hear it, said Marilla with decision. It's what you should have done long ago. Oh, no, no, Marilla. And I don't see how I can ever look those children in the face again. I feel that I've humiliated myself to the very dust. You don't know how cross and hateful and horrid I was. I can't forget the expression in Paul Irving's eyes. He looked so surprised and disappointed. Oh, Marilla, I have tried so hard to be patient and to win Anthony's liking, and now it has all gone for nothing. Marilla passed her hard, work-worn hand over the girl's glossy, tumbled hair with a wonderful tenderness. When Anne's sobs grew quieter, she said very gently for her, You take things too much to heart, Anne. We all make mistakes but people forget them. 
and Jonah Days come to everybody. As for Anthony Pye, why need you care if he does dislike you? He is the only one. I can't help it. I want everybody to love me, and it hurts me so when anybody doesn't. And Anthony never will now. Oh, I just made an idiot of myself today, Marilla. I'll tell you the whole story. Marilla listened to the whole story, and if she smiled at certain parts of it, Anne never knew. When the tale was ended, she said briskly, Well, never mind. This day's done, and there's a new one coming tomorrow, with no mistakes in it yet, as you, you used to say yourself. Just come downstairs and have your supper. You'll see if a good cup of tea and those plum puffs I made today won't hearten you up. Plum puffs won't minister to a mind diseased, said Anne disconsolately, but Marilla thought it a good sign that she had recovered sufficiently to adapt a quotation. The cheerful supper table, with the twins' bright faces and Marilla's matchless plum puffs, of which Davy ate four, did hearten her up considerably after all. She had a good sleep that night and awakened in the morning to find herself and the world transformed. It had snowed softly and thickly all through the hours of darkness, and the beautiful whiteness glittering in the frosty sunshine looked like a mantle of charity cast over all the mistakes and humiliations of the past. Every morn is a fresh beginning, every morn is the world made new, sang Anne as she dressed, and I'm very sorry. Owing to the snow, she had to go around by the road to school, and she thought it was certainly an impish coincidence that Anthony Pye should come plowing along just as she left the Green Gables Lane. She felt as guilty as if their positions were reversed, but to her unspeakable astonishment, Anthony not only lifted his cap, which he had never done before, but said easily, Kind of bad walking, ain't it? Can I take those books for your teacher? Anne surrendered her books and wondered if she could possibly be awake. Anthony walked on in silence to the school, but when Anthony took her books, she smiled down at him, not the stereotyped kind smile she had so persistently assumed for his benefit, but a sudden outflashing of good comradeship. Anthony smiled. No, if the truth must be told, Anthony grinned back. A grin is not generally supposed to be a respectful thing, yet Anne suddenly felt that if she had not yet won Anthony's liking, she had, somehow or other, won his respect. Mrs. Rachel Lynde came up the next Saturday and confirmed this. Well, Anne, I guess you've won over Anthony Pye, that's what. He says you believe you are some good after all, even if you are a girl. Says that whipping you gave him was just as good as a man's. I never expected to win him by whipping him, though, said Anne a little mournfully, feeling that her ideals had played her false somewhere. It doesn't seem right. I'm sure my theory of kindness can't be wrong. No, but the pies are an exception to every known rule, that's what, declared Mrs. Rachel with conviction. Mr. Harrison said, thought you'd come to it, when he heard it, and Jane rubbed it in rather unmercifully. Chapter 13 A Golden Picnic Anne, on her way to Orchard Slope, met Diana bound for Green Gables, just where the mossy old log bridge spanned the brook below the haunted wood, and they sat down by the margin of the dryad's bubble, where tiny ferns were unrolling like curly-headed green pixie folk wakening up from a nap. "'I was just on my way over to invite you to help me celebrate my birthday on Saturday,' said Anne. "'Your birthday? But your birthday was in March!' "'That wasn't my fault,' laughed Anne. "'If my parents had consulted me, it would never have happened then.' 
I should have chosen to be born in spring, of course. It must be delightful to come into the world with the mayflowers and violets. You would always feel that you were their foster sister. But since I didn't, the next best thing is to celebrate my birthday in the spring. Priscilla is coming over Saturday, and Jane will be home. We'll all four start off to the woods and spend a golden day making the acquaintance of the spring. We none of us really know her yet, but we'll meet her back there as we never can anywhere else. I want to explore all those fields and lonely places anyhow. I have a conviction that there are scores of beautiful nooks there that have never really been seen, although they may have been looked at. We'll make friends with wind and sky and sun and bring home the spring in our hearts. It sounds awfully nice, said Diana, with some inward distrust of Anne's magic of words. But won't it be very damp in some places yet? Oh, we'll wear rubbers, was Anne's concession to practicalities. And I want you to come over early Saturday morning and help me prepare lunch. I'm going to have the daintiest things possible. Things that will match the spring, you understand. Little jelly tarts and lady fingers, and drop cookies frosted with pink and yellow icing, and buttercup cake. And we must have sandwiches, too, though they're not very poetical. Saturday proved an ideal day for a picnic. A day of breeze and blue, warm, sunny, with a little rollicking wind blowing across meadow and orchard. Over every sunlit upland and field was a delicate flower-starred green. Mr. Harrison, harrowing at the back of his farm and feeling some of the spring witchwork even in his sober middle-aged blood, saw four girls, basket-laden, tripping across the end of his field where it joined a fringing woodland of birch and fir. Their blithe voices and laughter echoed down to him. "'It's so easy to be happy on a day like this, isn't it?' Anne was saying, with true Annish philosophy. "'Let's try to make this a really golden day, girls, a day to which we can always look back with delight.' We are to seek for beauty and refuse to see anything else. Be gone, dull care. Jane, you are thinking of something that went wrong in school yesterday. How do you know? gasped Jane, amazed. Oh, I know the expression. I felt it often enough on my own face. But put it out of your mind, there's a dear. It will keep till Monday. Or if it doesn't, so much the better. Oh, girls, girls, see that patch of violets? There's something from memory's picture gallery. When I'm eighty years old... If I ever am, I shall shut my eyes and see those violets just as I see them now. That's the first good gift our day has given us. If a kiss could be seen, I think it would look like a violet, said Priscilla. Anne glowed. I'm so glad you spoke that thought, Priscilla, instead of just thinking it and keeping it to yourself. This world would be a much more interesting place, although it is very interesting anyhow, if people spoke out their real thoughts. It would be too hot to hold some folks, quoted Jane sagely. And before you go and check the notes, I have no idea what Jane is supposed to be quoting there. Miss Montgomery, you are killing me with these mangled quotations and not sourcing them. Really, you should be more respectful of your you know, researchers and readers. I'm sorry, I'll continue. It would be too hot to hold some folks, quoted Jane sagely. I suppose it might be, but that would be their own faults for thinking nasty things. Anyhow, we can tell all our thoughts today because we are going to have nothing but beautiful thoughts. Everybody can say just what comes into her head. That is conversation. Here's a little path I never saw before. Let's explore it. The path was a winding one, so narrow that the girls walked in single file, and even then the fir boughs brushed their faces. 
Under the firs were velvety cushions of moss, and further on, where the trees were smaller and fewer, the ground was rich in a variety of green growing things. What a lot of elephant's ears, exclaimed Diana. I'm going to pick a big bunch. They're so pretty. How did such graceful feathery things ever come to have such a dreadful name? asked Priscilla. Because the person who first named them either had no imagination at all or else far too much, said Anne. Oh, girls, look at that! That was a shallow woodland pool in the center of a little open glade where the path ended. Later on in the season, it would be dried up and its place filled with a rank growth of ferns, but now it was a glimmering placid sheet, round as a saucer and clear as crystal. A ring of slender young birches encircled it, and little ferns fringed its margin. How sweet, said Jane. Let us dance around it like wood nymphs, cried Anne, dropping her basket and extending her hands. But the dance was not a success, for the ground was boggy, and Jane's rubbers came off. You can't be a wood nymph if you have to wear rubbers, was her decision. Well, we must name this place before we leave it, said Anne, yielding to the indisputable logic of facts. Everybody suggest a name, and we'll draw lots. Diana? Birchpool, suggested Diana promptly. Crystal Lake, said Jane. Anne, standing behind them, implored Priscilla with her eyes not to perpetrate another such name, and Priscilla rose to the occasion with glimmer glass. Anne's selection was The Fairy's Mirror. The names were written on strips of birch bark with a pencil schoolma'am Jane produced from her pocket and placed in Anne's hat. Then Priscilla shut her eyes and drew one. Crystal Lake, read Jane triumphantly. Crystal Lake it was, and if Anne thought that chance had played the pool a shabby trick, she did not say so. What happened to speaking all your thoughts, Anne, huh? Huh? Yeah. Pushing through the undergrowth beyond, the girls came out to the young green seclusion of Mr. Silas Sloane's back pasture. Across it, they found the entrance to a lane striking up through the woods, and voted to explore it also. It rewarded their quest with a succession of pretty surprises. First, skirting Mr. Sloane's pasture, came an archway of wild cherry trees all in bloom. The girls swung their hats on their arms and wreathed their hair with the creamy, fluffy blossoms. Then the lane turned at right angles and plunged into a spruce wood so thick and dark that they walked in a gloom as of twilight, with not a glimpse of sky or sunlight to be seen. "'This is where the bad wood elves dwell,' whispered Anne. "'They are impish and malicious,' but they can't harm us because they are not allowed to do evil in the spring. There was one peeping at us around that old twisted fir, and didn't you see a group of them on that big freckly toadstool we just passed? The good fairies always dwell in the sunshiny places. I wish there really were fairies, said Jane. Wouldn't it be nice to have three wishes granted you, or even only one? What would you wish for, girls, if you could have a wish granted? I'd wish to be rich and beautiful and clever. I'd wish to be tall and slender, said Diana. I would wish to be famous, said Priscilla. Anne thought of her hair, and then dismissed the thought as unworthy. I'd wish it might be spring all the time, and in everybody's heart and all our lives, she said. But that, said Priscilla, would be just wishing this world were like heaven. Only like a part of heaven. In the other parts, there would be summer and autumn. Yes, and a bit of winter, too. I think I want glittering snowy fields and white frosts in heaven sometimes. Don't you, Jane? I... 
I don't know, said Jane uncomfortably. Jane was a good girl, a member of the church, who tried conscientiously to live up to her profession and believed everything she had been taught. But she never thought about heaven any more than she could help, for all that. Minnie May asked me the other day if we would wear our best dresses every day in heaven, laughed Diana. And didn't you tell her we would? asked Anne. Mercy, no. I told her we wouldn't be thinking of dresses at all there. Oh, I think we will. A little, said Anne earnestly. There'll be plenty of time in all eternity for it without neglecting more important things. I believe we'll all wear beautiful dresses, or I suppose raiment would be a more suitable way of speaking. I shall want to wear pink for a few centuries at first. It would take me that long to get tired of it, I feel sure. I do love pink so, and I can never wear it in this world. Past the spruces, the lane dipped down into a sunny little open where a log bridge spanned a brook. And then there came the glory of a sunlit beechwood where the air was like transparent golden wine, and the leaves fresh and green, and the wood floor a mosaic of tremulous sunshine. Then more wild cherries, and a little valley of lissom firs, and then a hill so steep that the girls lost their breath climbing it. But when they reached the top and came out into the open, the prettiest surprise of all awaited them. Beyond were the back fields of the farms that ran out to the upper Carmody Road. Just before them, hemmed in by beeches and firs but open to the south, was a little corner, and in it a garden, or what had once been a garden. A tumble-down stone dyke, overgrown with mosses and grass, surrounded it. Along the eastern side ran a row of garden cherry trees, white as a snowdrift. There were traces of old paths still, and a double line of rose bushes through the middle. But all the rest of the space was a sheet of yellow and white narcissi, in their airiest, most lavish, wind-sprayed bloom above the lush green grasses. "'Oh, how perfectly lovely!' three of the girls cried. Anne only gazed in eloquent silence. "'How in the world does it happen that there ever was a garden back here?' said Priscilla in amazement. "'It must be Hester Gray's garden,' said Diana. "'I've heard Mother speak of it, but I never saw it before, and I wouldn't have supposed that it could be in existence still. "'You've heard the story, Anne?' "'No, but the name sounds familiar to me. "'Oh, you've seen it in the graveyard. "'She is buried down there in the poplar corner.' You know the little brown stone with the opening gates carved on it and sacred to the memory of Hester Gray, aged twenty-two. Jordan Gray is buried right beside her, but there's no stone to him. It's a wonder Marilla never told you about it, Anne. To be sure, it happened thirty years ago and everybody has forgotten. Well, if there's a story, we must have it, said Anne. Let's sit right down here among the Narcissi and Diana will tell it. Why, girls, there are hundreds of them. They've spread over everything. It looks as if the garden were carpeted with moonshine and sunshine combined. This is a discovery worth making. To think that I've lived within a mile of this place for six years and have never seen it before. Now, Diana. Long ago, began Diana, this farm belonged to old Mr. David Gray. He didn't live on it. He lived where Silas Sloan lives now. He had one son, Jordan, and he went up to Boston one winter to work and while he was there, he fell in love with a girl named Hester Murray. She was working in a store, and she hated it. She'd been brought up in the country, and she always wanted to get back. When Jordan asked her to marry him, she said she would if he'd take her away to some quiet spot where she'd see nothing but fields and trees. So he brought her to Avonlea. Mrs. Lynde said he was taking a fearful risk in marrying a Yankee, 
and it's certain that Hesper was very delicate and a very poor housekeeper. But Mother says she was very pretty and sweet, and Jordan just worshipped the ground she walked on. Well, Mr. Gray gave Jordan this farm, and he built a little house back here, and Jordan and Hester lived in it for four years. She never went out much, and hardly anybody went to see her except Mother and Mrs. Lynde. Jordan made her this garden, and she was crazy about it, and spent most of her time in it. She wasn't much of a housekeeper, but she had a knack with flowers. And then she got sick. Mother says she thinks she was in consumption before she really laid up, but just grew weaker and weaker all the time. Jordan wouldn't have anybody to wait on her. He did it all himself, and Mother says he was as tender and gentle as a woman. Every day, he'd wrap her in a shawl and carry her out to the garden, and she'd lie there on a bench quite happy. They say she used to make Jordan kneel down by her every night and morning and pray with her that she might die out in the garden when the time came. And her prayer was answered. One day, Jordan carried her out to the bench, and then he picked all the roses that were out and heaped them over her, and she just smiled up at him and closed her eyes. And that, concluded Diana softly, was the end. Oh, what a dear story, sighed Anne, wiping away her tears. What became of Jordan? asked Priscilla. He sold the farm after Hester died and went back to Boston. Mr. Jabez Sloan bought the farm and hauled the little house out to the road. Jordan died about ten years after, and he was brought home and buried beside Hester. I can't understand how she could have wanted to live back here away from everything, said Jane. Oh, I can easily understand that, said Anne thoughtfully. I wouldn't want it myself for a steady thing, because although I love the fields and woods, I love people too. But I can understand it in Hester. She was tired to death of the noise of the big city and the crowds of people always coming and going and caring nothing for her. She just wanted to escape from it all to some still, green, friendly place where she could rest. And she got just what she wanted, which is something very few people do, I believe. She had four beautiful years before she died. Four years of perfect happiness, so I think she was to be envied more than pitied. And then to shut your eyes and fall asleep among roses with the one you loved best on earth smiling down at you. Oh, I think it was beautiful. She set out those cherry trees over there, said Diana. She told Mother she'd never live to eat their fruit, but she wanted to think that something she had planted would go on living and helping to make the world beautiful after she was dead. I'm so glad we came this way, said Anne, the shining-eyed. This is my adopted birthday, you know, and this garden and its story is the birthday gift it has given me. Did your mother ever tell you what Hester Gray looked like, Diana? No, only just that she was pretty. I'm rather glad of that, because I can imagine what she looked like without being hampered by facts. I think she was very slight and small, with softly curling dark hair and big, sweet, timid brown eyes, and a little wistful, pale face. The girls left their baskets in Hester's garden, and spent the rest of the afternoon rambling in the woods and fields surrounding it, discovering many pretty nooks and lanes. When they got hungry, they had lunch in the prettiest spot of all, on the steep bank of a gurgling brook where white birches shot up out of long, feathery grasses. The girls sat down by the roots and did full justice to Anne's dainties, even the unpoetical sandwiches being greatly appreciated by hearty, unspoiled appetites, sharpened by all the fresh air and exercise they had enjoyed. 
Anne had brought glasses and lemonade for her guests, but for her own part, drank cold brook water from a cup fashioned out of birch bark. The cup leaked, and the water tasted of earth, as brook water is apt to do in spring, but Anne thought it more appropriate to the occasion than lemonade. Look, do you see that poem? she said suddenly, pointing. Where? Jane and Diana stared, as if expecting to see runic rhymes on the birch trees. There, down in the brook, that old green mossy log with the water flowing over it in those smooth ripples that look as if they'd been combed, and that single shaft of sunshine falling right athwart it, far down into the pool. Oh, it's the most beautiful poem I ever saw. I should rather call it a picture, said Jane. A poem is lines and verses. Oh, dear me, no. Anne shook her head with its fluffy wild cherry coronal positively. The lines and verses are only the outward garments of the poem, and are no more, more really it than your ruffles and flounces are you, Jane. The real poem is the soul within them, and that beautiful bit is the soul of an unwritten poem. It is not every day one sees a soul, even of a poem. I wonder what a soul, a person's soul, would look like, said Priscilla dreamily. Like that, I should think answered Anne, pointing to a radiance of sifted sunlight streaming through a birch tree. Only with shape and features, of course. I like to fancy souls as being made of light. And some are all shot through with rosy stains and quivers. And some have a soft glitter like moonlight on the sea. And some are pale and transparent like mist at dawn. I read somewhere once that souls were like flowers, said Priscilla. Then your soul is a golden narcissus, said Anne, and Diana's is like a red, red rose. Jane's is an apple blossom, pink and wholesome and sweet. And your own is a white violet with purple streaks in its heart, finished Priscilla. Jane whispered to Diana that she really could not understand what they were talking about. Could she? The girls went home by the light of a calm golden sunset their baskets filled with narcissus blossoms from Hester's garden, some of which Anne carried to the cemetery next day and laid upon Hester's grave. Minstrel robins were whistling in the firs, and the frogs were singing in the marshes. All the basins among the hills were brimmed with topaz and emerald light. "'Well, we've had a lovely time after all,' said Diana, as if she had hardly expected to have it when she set out. "'It has been a truly golden day,' said Priscilla, I'm really awfully fond of the woods myself, said Jane. Anne said nothing. She was looking afar into the western sky and thinking of little Hester Gray. And we will stop there for tonight. So thanks again for listening. Come back next time. We'll continue on with more of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Thanks for listening and have a good night, everyone. <laughs>